Welcome to a special episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. We now continue our conversation with ASSP President-elect Deb Roy about the impact COVID-19 is having on occupational safety and health and the steps safety professionals can take to protect their workers. We would also like to note before we begin that the information shared in this podcast is based on the data that were available from trusted sources and the phase of response in the U.S. on March 23, 2020. As the situation continues to change rapidly, please refer to current guidance from your local or state public health organization. So now let's move into OSHA. Is a COVID-19 case recordable on the OSHA log under the OSHA record-keeping standards? Um, COVID-19 cases can be recordable illness if a worker is infected as a result of performing their work-related duties. However, employers are only responsible for recording cases of COVID-19 if three things are met, and all three, their ands, have to be met. The first is that the case is a confirmed case of COVID-19. The second is that the case is work-related, as defined by the OSHA standard. Um, And the third is that the case involves one or more general recording criteria. So for example, that means is, did the person have medical treatment beyond first aid or days away from work? And so the key here is that if I go back and think about this from the type of cases you might have, let's say you have somebody that's hospitalized with COVID-19. If that's the case, then you would have confirmation that it's a case, so it would meet number one. If the case is work-related, you'd have to decide whether there was risk in the workplace. For example, healthcare workers um, might be at risk. Other persons at work in a manufacturing or warehouse or other type of general employer may have had a work-related exposure if indeed um, they are working next to someone and got coughed on, for example, um, and and that person did not have, for example, a household that was already ill with COVID-19. So you really have to do the normal uh, evaluation of the risk to determine if the case is work-related, just like you would anyway. And then the third is, does the case involve um, one of the criteria I mentioned, medical treatment in the case of a hospitalized person obviously would have occurred. So they automatically in this case would be recordable based on the fact that they met all three. The other piece of that is, did they have days away from work? So in the case of a hospitalization, they would both be treated uh, with medical treatment and have days away from work. But if you have a case where someone actually recovered at home instead, they may still have a confirmed case of COVID-19, which is the first element. They may still have a work-related case. And the third one, they may not have had medical treatment because they may have just been tested and not actually been treated. But they would, in that case, have days away from work since they need to stay away from work for typically about seven days. So in that case, it would meet the definition. Where this is going to be become interesting is once you have sustained um, community spread, 
of the virus, it's going to be very difficult to actually identify is the case work-related or not. So right now, it has to meet all three, but you're going to do the normal evaluation just like you would for any other case that is potentially recordable by OSHA. Okay, and uh, along those lines, what is a company's obligation to report employee-confirmed cases to OSHA? That's a good question, Scott. So uh, there's a lot of confusion between recording and reporting. So recording means you're going to record it on the log, and, and that's what we just went through is what the definition is for recording on the log with COVID-19 disease. In this case, we're talking about reporting, meaning you've got to tell OSHA something more quickly. So if a COVID-19 case meets the definition above that we just talked about, uh, that it meets those three elements, confirmed case, work-related, and it involves one or more of the general recording criteria, then it's reportable if it's a fatality, and that has to be reported within eight hours to OSHA. Or if a patient is hospitalized, it has to be reported to OSHA within 24 hours. So that means in either of those cases, a fatality or an inpatient hospitalization, meaning they stay overnight, um, that has to be reported to OSHA. Um, so typically you call OSHA uh, based on those timeframes when you have a reported case. There's no reporting requirement unless it meets one of those two, fatality or hospitalization. Okay, now if a COVID-19 case is recordable under the OSHA record-keeping standards, is it compensable under workers' compensation? This is another area where even OSHA professionals get kind of confused. Um, the key here is there's a difference between OSHA definitions and workers' comp definitions. Workers' comp is different from state to state, and therefore it may have a different definition of what is work-related. A case may or may not be compensable under workers' compensation, even if it's recordable under OSHA. So if you have a case that is recordable under OSHA, you would want to consult with your workers' comp carrier or your state workers' compensation agency because each state may handle this a little bit differently. It's likely if there is sustained community uh, transmission that the workers' comp carriers will feel that um, they don't, they're not responsible for it because it's a community exposure. Um, that doesn't make it different from a work-related exposure on for OSHA because their definition may be different. Now, on that note about how states are hand, each uh, handling this in their own way, how are companies handling employee travel to states with community transmission per the CDC? Um, mainly in relation to personal travel, um, I, I'm seeing companies, you know, feel that they can't put restrictions on it. So if somebody was planning a vacation, for example, um, they're still allowing those individuals to go on those vacations if they choose to do that because they can't really stop individuals. But many companies, particularly healthcare organizations, are requiring that employees who choose to travel personally to states with community transmission um, quarantine themselves at home after returning 
Now, earlier on in the pandemic, that was typically for 14 days. Now what we're seeing is um, companies are requiring seven days um, because we're further in the pandemic process. So, and a lot of those companies are requiring employees, if they choose to do this uh, for personal travel, to use their paid time off in that case. So now one question that's that's come up uh, a lot with uh, in COVID-19 conversations is uh, the timeline to get a vaccine. Now, now, why were we able to get an Ebola vaccine so much faster than the 12 to 18 month timeline that they're projecting for a COVID-19 vaccine? Uh, the normal time frame to develop a new vaccine is 12 to 18 months, which is what you're hearing um, in the news. The short answer in comparison to Ebola is, I think, um, really important. Ebola was a very uh, dangerous disease with a very high mortality rate. Um, There were vaccines that were in research when the outbreak occurred in Africa and when it was declared in 2014. So basically what had to happen at that point is that the WHO and others who were involved had to pick which of those vaccines that were already developed was going to be the best to actually move forward with. Um, Once they did that, they did clinical trials, and they actually did clinical trials in 10 countries, including the U.S. uh, and Africa, and they did those clinical trials in less than 12 months. And what happens in a clinical trial is you actually identify, does it work? And it worked so well that the vaccine was quickly produced after those clinical trials and used to protect uh, individuals in Africa from Ebola. And it was very successful. Interestingly enough, that outbreak occurred in, in 2014. The FDA just approved an Ebola vaccine in the U.S. in December of 2019. So, uh even though there are opportunities to develop vaccines, they may or may not go into production uh, depending on the need at the time. The difference in this particular case is this is a brand new virus. So no one had the opportunity to actually develop a a vaccine previously. So we're starting from scratch. Okay. uh Okay. Now, switching gears here, can you provide some insight on an employer requiring temperature screenings upon arrival to work as part of a screening tool to allow employees in the workplace? There is a recent recent guidance um, as of March 18th, um, 2020. The EEOC uh, in the U.S. actually put out guidance that says employers may measure employees' body temperature and However, employers need to be aware that some people with um, COVID-19 do not have a fever. And um, that link is provided. The key here to keep in mind is that you still need to use an appropriate process uh, to go through that and think about uh, how you're going to manage people um, if they Uh, are positive in that circumstance. So if they have a high fever, how are you going to address them? So that should be part of your procedure. Okay. Along those same lines, is there guidance as to if temperature screening is effective for COVID-19? 
there are there is some effectiveness to doing temperature screening, but it's not a hundred percent. The frequently reported signs and symptoms of patients admitted to a hospital do include fever, but it's in the range of 77 to 98%. And I've even seen some data recently that's lower. Uh, cough is about 46 to 82%. Fatigue is about 11 to 52%. And shortness of breath is less, uh, about 3% to 31% at the illness onset. So in this case, those, if you're uh, asking people about their symptoms and or testing for fever, um, there is a range in terms of uh, whether or not those symptoms exist, even for somebody that's positive. So uh, yes, you can do it, but it's not 100% effective. You will miss some people. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, fever is considered to be 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius or higher. So um, you also need to, to uh, keep in mind that confidentiality of patient data uh, needs to be considered when you're screening employees. So you don't want to call out, for example, what the temperature is for each person going by in a line, for example. And you want to do it in a way that is, allows for uh, some social distancing. Um, I have seen companies actually doing it as people drive in to a site um, so that they're in their vehicle uh, and the individual is able to stand away with a um, thermometer that actually is uh, a little bit at a distance to protect the individual and those individuals have PPE on. Going back to the transmission of the disease for a moment, do we know if a person can get sick from COVID-19 more than once? We actually don't know that yet. Um, it appears that immunity develops to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, and it's theorized that it'll last at least a year. Um, there are some reports from China that patients became ill again and tested positive after they were sent home as recovered. It's also possible in those cases that the individuals were not tested accurately or that they were discharged before they were actually recovered. So there's a lot we don't know right now. Um, it will require more research. Uh, we're hopeful because this is a new virus that people will develop immunity for at least some time. Okay, now uh, a lot of the conversation around COVID-19 has focused on the need for PPE. Now. Uh, with that in mind, should N95 respirators be used for all or only for hospital and healthcare staff? Given the global supply chain challenge for PPE, given the pandemic is in 150 countries, it's recommended that N95 masks be used and preserved for use by healthcare workers and emergency responders as much as possible. Each country will have their own strategy. There is WHO guidance specifically uh, that addresses uh, what kinds of groups should be using PPE. There's also guidance from the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., and there's guidance from OSHA. Continuing on the workplace safety and health topic, if a workplace has a confirmed case based on virus life, would a 72-hour shutdown be encouraged if they cannot decontaminate all work surfaces? Center for Disease Control actually doesn't require a shutdown at all for cleaning and disinfection. Um, COVID-19, remember, is a droplet disease. 
it doesn't aerosolize far from the six person. And one of the things that I'm finding people are, are confused about is the difference between droplets and aerosols. Droplets are large liquid drops. They tend to be heavy and they tend to fall onto the surface as soon as somebody coughs, for example. Aerosols are much, much smaller. And if you think about spraying air freshener, for example, that's an aerosol. You see that little bit of in the sunlight, you might see that little, little cloud. Those aerosols are generally produced when healthcare um, procedures are done on a, a positive individual. Um, there is a little bit of aerosolization that occurs along with the droplets when somebody coughs in a, a, anywhere they are in a traditional workplace. Um, but the fact is that that aerosol is a hazard to the individual that's within the space of that sick individual. It doesn't hang like a cloud waiting for somebody to walk through it. So it's really important to think about the fact that um, the cleaning really is needed for high touch surfaces and also for the sick employees workstation. So, you know, for basically six feet in all directions from where that person sits or stands is where the, the area needs to be cleaned. And then any other high touch surfaces that, um, that typically are used by employees, things like door handles and railings and light switches and, uh, and so forth. Those are the areas that need to be cleaned. I think the perception is that you have to fog an entire um, you know, 200,000 square foot plant. And that's not the case. Earlier, we talked about uh, how long the virus can live on particular services. So how long uh, does the virus live on something like, say, a plastic garbage can? And should uh, food scrap collection service providers discontinue service due to safety precautions? Um, again, the, the, uh, we have that one early NIH study and it did note that the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus could live on plastic for up to three days, but it's not considered a likely source of transmission. And in fact, by using gloves and good personal hygiene, washing your hands, not touching your face, that should address this really low risk. Social distancing should also be practiced as recommended for all work sites. So once, um, somebody who is a qualified safety professional pro does a risk assessment on a job, it would be the business leadership's decision on whether to discontinue a service like this. It's really not something uh, that would other otherwise be considered high risk, despite this early study, because it can easily be contained or controlled with um, proper protection. Stay, staying on that sanitation angle, what about workers who work outside like waste and recycling collectors, uh, landfill workers, sanitation workers, how can they protect themselves and what are best management practices? So again, all of those kinds of outdoor jobs and construction would be part of this too. For the most part, these jobs are considered low risk. Um, and all workplaces should be evaluated for the risk of COVID-19 based on whether people need to congregate to do the task um, and whether or not social distancing can be done 
or if barriers can be put up and so forth. So I would say the OSH professionals really need to look at all of these jobs as a whole and, and say what parts of this are higher risk than others, if any. For the most part, I would say all of these outdoor jobs would be low risk as long as people aren't congregating um, and they're using all of the uh, the usual practices that I've mentioned, like um, the uh, cleaning surfaces that are high touch and also good hygiene. Now, as we've discussed, a big aspect of COVID-19 prevention is social distancing. But what recommendations would you have for companies with workers whose jobs cannot be done at home? For instance, uh, at a manufacturing plant using large machinery, warehousing, etc., is there a recommendation on, say, shifts, changed work schedules, use of PPE by employees? Uh, yes. Yeah. So this is classic social distancing. So oftentimes these large spaces, um, people can work very safely by using some traditional social distancing techniques. Um, some examples would be establishing alternating days or extra shifts that reduce the total number of employees in a facility at a given time, allowing them to maintain the distance from one, other, one another while maintaining a full on-site work week. Um, you can stagger shifts so that one shift leaves a facility, high-touch cleaning is done in between, and then the next shift arrives. Um, and so the idea is just separating people. So in this case, so that you don't have all of that crowding that would occur normally with people coming in and going out at the same time. Um, you can also stagger for uh, lunch breaks um, and for rest breaks to minimize the number of people in the cafeterias or in lines. Um, if you have separate break areas throughout a plant, for example, um, you want to minimize the number of people that are taking the break at the same time. And generally, that just means if you have three um, shifts right now, maybe you have six shifts instead of the break times and the uh, lunch times, for example. Uh, the other thing you can do is similar to what local restaurants are doing right now, the on-site cafeteria can move to a call-ahead and order system or prepackaged food uh, to avoid contact with the food service workers and also for people congregating in hot food areas or in lines. Um, for work areas themselves, uh, some employers are using plexiglass barriers. I've seen some really creative things out there uh, to protect workers from droplets. Or as I mentioned earlier, you can actually reconfigure areas so that um, you have conveyors in between or use every other workstation so that people are spaced appropriately. Um, you want to minimize contact among workers, but also among clients and customers. You can uh, replace face-to-face -face meetings with virtual communications. Uh, always want to be sure that you have things like tissues, no-touch trash cans, hand soap and running water is critical. And in areas where you don't have hand washing capability, um, the alcohol-based hand wipe, wipes or rubs are important. Uh, again, with 60% alcohol, and and then cleaning high-touch areas and having disposable towels for workers so they can clean their own work surfaces. This is really important, too, for places like call centers that may have people staggered and may have spacing, but the 
the individuals want to be sure their own space is clean. Um, provide them with wipes so that they can clean their own space if they have any concerns. Um, you also want to discourage workers from using other workers' phones, desks, offices, or work tools or equipment when that is possible. If not, they should be cleaned in between. And then um, you want to maintain regular housekeeping practices, uh, including the routine cleaning, but also the disinfecting of those high-touch surfaces that we mentioned, uh, equipment, anything else in the workplace where people are going to be touching. And when you're choosing those cleaning chemicals, um, you need to consult the EPA-approved disinfectant list uh, for that information. And in fact, um, CDC just updated their guidance a couple of days ago on uh, cleaning of surfaces in the community, which includes workplaces. And um, they've actually added a lot more information and it's, it's, a, it's a great document to use. It should answer most of your questions about cleaning because I know some places have had concerns about not being able to get their normal cleaning products, but regular old bleach and water work just fine and most employers have that. I also want to just, um, you asked Scott at the end about PPE. I've seen some employers um, ask about using using masks to be able to separate workers from a social distancing standpoint, just using PPE. Remember that with the hierarchy of controls, we always want to go to the highest control available. PPE is really the lowest control. And in a workplace uh, like a warehouse or manufacturing or some other general workplace, we really don't want to be, number one, using the masks that are needed in healthcare or using the masks just to separate people. The fact is social uh, distancing or what physical distancing is what's really critical in a pandemic as opposed to just putting PPE on somebody. With, with regard to, to safety professionals, where would you put safety professionals in OSHA's risk pyramid? For example, consultants, industrial hygienists who may travel and the like. I think if if I did a risk assessment on, on OSHA professionals, I would say we're really considered to be low risk according to OSHA's guidance, um, the, the new document that I mentioned. Most of us are in office roles and yes, we may travel and yes, we may go to different sites, but the expectation is we would use the same sort of guidance as, as I've mentioned for everybody else with social distancing and hygiene. Um, so just like with all jobs, you'd want to do a risk assessment if you're doing some kind of unusual tasks. The risk will depend on the industry and the actual work tasks. So if somebody's an industrial hygienist and they're actually going into the respiratory space of an individual to do, to do monitoring, then they may have a higher risk and you need to evaluate that higher risk and determine what level of protection is needed based on the risk. Going back to, to talking about particular industries, what preventative measures should be taken to mitigate potential exposures in industries like food manufacturing or other essential manufacturing facilities? Should you send home staff and keep the production workers even if it sends a negative message? Uh, is this a situation where rotational schedule would be ideal? The, the mitigation strategy really depends on the risk. Keep in mind at this point, we have sustained community transmission in many areas of the country. And for those workers who need to be working because they're in essential manufacturing, um, you want to address that level of risk. 
so if there are office workers in a company that can work from home um, in that situation, that would be preferable to send the workers home to telework and have the production workers stay in the manufacturing plants. The rotational schedule with uh, leadership in the plant might be a good solution. So all other social distancing and hygiene strategies should be used along with sending employees home when they're sick. And going back to the, the transmission of the virus, can someone transmit COVID-19 and not have symptoms? Right now, people are thought to be most contagious um, when they're most symptomatic. In other words, they're having a fever, cough, or, or shortness of breath. Um, that's when they're shedding the most virus. Um, some spread might be possible before people show symptoms. We call that pre-symptomatic. And there have been reports of this type of um, exposure. There's also been some um, reports of asymptomatic transmission with COVID-19. And what that means is someone may actually um, have the virus, uh, but not have any symptoms. We don't know at this point um, how widespread that is. There are um, a few small um, uh, studies that are looking at just pre-existing data that that is available, for example, from the Diamond Princess that was off the coast of Japan, from uh, some Japanese um, citizens who actually were repatriated to Japan from Wuhan, China, and also um, some of the um, data from South Korea. So there are researchers looking at that, but we don't know at this point, and we probably won't know until after the pandemic is over, what the true percentage is of individuals who might have transmitted. Right now, uh, USCDC doesn't feel that that's the major portion of the community spread. They feel that most of it is actually somebody with direct contact. Okay, and uh, one last question as we as we wrap up here, and this is regard to treatment. Uh, can ibuprofen be used to treat fever due to COVID nineteen at home? Yes, there's been some confusion um, around this particular issue, and where that comes from is there was a letter published in Lancet uh, on March eleventh, twenty twenty, that hypothesized that the use of ibuprofen could worsen the outcome of COVID nineteen disease. But on March 19th, uh, the World Health Organization released this statement. WHO is aware of concerns on the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, i.e. ibuprofen, for the treatment of fever for people with COVID-19. At present, after a rapid review of the literature, WHO is not aware of published clinical or population-based data on this topic. We are consulting with physicians treating COVID-19 patients and are not aware of reports of any negative effects of ibuprofen beyond the usual known side effects that limit its use in certain populations. Based on the currently available information, WHO does not recommend against the use of ibuprofen. So what that means is if you are treating at home and you need to treat a fever, you can use ibuprofen as long as the individual doesn't have gastrointestinal issues um, with taking ibuprofen or um, a disease that they're already aware of 
is uh, an issue with ibuprofen. And then otherwise, um, you can use um, brand name Tylenol, which is called acetaminophen, uh, as an alternative. So those are the ways to reduce fever if somebody's treating at home. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights, Deb. This is an issue that is affecting us all, and I hope safety professionals take this information back to their organizations and use these tools to protect the health of their workers and communities. So thank you again. You're welcome. You can find a recording of Deb's recent coronavirus Ask the Expert Q&A and other useful information about how you can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 at ASSP.org coronavirus. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.